0: Kia and welcome to the Ending Life Well podcast. This podcast series for carers focuses on advice and practical solutions for carers who have been thrown into the deep end, looking after a loved family member or friend in their last days, weeks or months of life. Our episode today is
1: Moving Into Aged Care, The Emotional Impact. Hi, I'm Denise Van Elst, a Senior Palliative Care Nurse and Educator at Otago Community Hospice. Today I'll be talking with Sally Fleming, a palliative care nurse practitioner with a particular interest and experience in aged care. We're going to be discussing moving into aged care and what kind of emotional impact this can have on everyone in the family. Welcome Sally. Hi Denise. Sally, thanks for joining us today. Often it can be difficult for people to accept the need for going into long-term care and that can make it a little bit harder for both the person who's moving into care and perhaps a family member who's staying at home.
0: Yeah, look, that's right. And I think I've been working in and around age residential care for over 30 years now and I think I could probably think of half a dozen people who really, really wanted to come into age residential care. The rest have moved in because it's been necessary, because of things that have happened in their lives and changes in their health or their circumstances. And so, you know, as with everything that you would really rather not be doing, it it takes an adjustment and it takes um, a bit of time to get your head around the fact that you need this and then to accept it.
1: Do you think sometimes it's going to be hard, certainly, for the person who has to move into aged care because this is whole new, it's no longer their home, um, and they have to adjust to living somewhere differently. But I'm guessing it's also hard for the person who has to let their loved one go into aged care. I think the first
0: thing that we should think about is the losses that people experience when they need to move into a a long-term care facility. They're losing the connection with their home, they're exiting perhaps a home that they've spent the majority of their life in, and they're moving into a, a room. So they have to choose a very few possessions to take with them and leave so much behind. They might have a spouse that they are separated from, they might have neighbours and community that they're separated from and they might lose their sense of purpose in the things that they used to be doing at home, whether that be you know, tendering a veggie garden or even smaller um, tasks if they had been unwell. So there are enormous losses um, that people have to deal with and it is the same for the spouse as well. They might have lost their companionship, they've lost their sense of purpose, they've perhaps been caring and looking after that person. So there are lots of losses everywhere and lots of grief associated with
1: those losses. So it's good really to just acknowledge that and allow that. You know, allow yourself to feel that grief and that sense of loss. This isn't what I planned. We were going to grow old together, we were going to stay in the house together and you know, it's it's perfectly normal and acceptable to have a period of grief and to deal with it. That's right. Often relatives
0: have a sense of guilt, that feeling that they have let someone down, that they've failed them because they're no longer able to look after them for whatever reasons. I know I promised my mother <laughs> that she would not go into a rest home. She made me promise and I did. Um and I let that down. I wasn't able to prevent her from going into a home. Um. So, yeah, there are lots of feelings. But, you know, there are also people who I have known who have felt a great sense of relief that their person is now somewhere where they're going to be safe, where they are going to have their needs met more easily, um, that the struggle that they were experiencing at home is... Now, over, sometimes there can be tension between relationships when it's a, a care relationship rather than a, a partnership. So, again, all sorts of feelings.
1: And Sally, I think it's great that you acknowledge that you, in fact, made that promise to your mum and felt that sense of guilt because, you know, as nurses, we're well aware that often people make that promise without any knowledge of what caring for somebody later in years might look like and you have a lot of that knowledge and experience and yet still you weren't able to do that and I often think the intent of our promise is that I'm going to do the very best I can by you and actually what it comes down to in the end is the very best for that person is not to remain in their own home how did she go in the end Sally how did she take long to settle
0: in oh gosh probably had the best year she lived for a year um And we had the best time. She was probably the most well for that whole period. Died beautifully. um, And she was someone who swore black and blue, take me out of the house in a box. I'm never going to um, go into a a home of any kind. She made new friends. Um, She had a great time. It was a really, really positive experience in many
1: ways. And didn't actually hold a grudge against you for apparently speech marks breaking your word <laughs> she had a little bit of
0: dementia so she might she might have forgotten um uh, about our arrangement um but I, I think that became a moot point because she was happy in the last year of her life yep
1: and Sally we often do see people's health improve when they move into care don't we because their food needs are catered for they're warm often their medication is a little bit better controlled they have people who know exactly what they're doing around helping them to walk or move around in the bed get to have a shower so those care needs are more easily met in a facility that's designed for that purpose.
0: Yeah that most definitely can happen it really depends on what is the reason for the person going into the long-term facility often they're coming in because they're very unwell and so there may not be much scope for them to improve too much. But they might just have that period um, where things are just a little easier. Um, and, yeah, I think especially patients who have been involved with the hospice, um, they will have, in most cases, had you know quite a bit of support um, provided at home. And so when they need to come into an aged care facility... They're generally pretty unwell and pretty tired and just needing care and support. But you're dead right, some people do pick up a little bit of more activity for a short period or are just a little bit more, enjoy that food for a little while. That's not always the case. Some people don't do well and it's generally because they're very sick and we are... um kind of expecting that decline so it it does
1: depend yeah that's a good point yeah Sally for the person who's staying at home that's quite a transition for them too isn't it because perhaps you know they had someone to care for and now they've only got themselves they've perhaps got to refigure you know preparing meals how do I bother cooking a meal when it's just for me So that's also quite a transition for them.
0: Oh, absolutely. You've got to realign what's motivating you today. You know, I could imagine if my whole day was around caring for another person from the moment I got up until the moment I went to bed and then that person's not there. um, I've got a lot of time to fill in. I've got a lot of... Gaps in my day, and how do I fill that? And it might be that some people have got loads of things that that they can get on and do with, but other people might find it quite difficult to be motivated, that they've lost that sense of purpose, and they have trouble finding something to replace that. And um, you know, that might be getting in the car and going into the facility, or they might just be a little bit lost and quite lonely, and you know, at risk of um, a depression. And it's just important that people um are aware to take notice of how they're feeling, whether they're sleeping, just what they're thinking about, and to look out for signs that they're having difficulty
1: adjusting to such
0: a life changing event
1: and I guess you know acknowledging that they're allowed to have that sense of loss because mm. especially if you're talking about a couple, they were yeah. expecting to spend the next twenty years together, and now that person's gone and You know, actually, there is a loss, isn't there? Because they might still be here on this earth, but they're not with me in my home. So, you know, we're allowed to grieve that. But it's, as you're saying, taking note of, is perhaps that grief becoming overwhelming? Do I need to talk with someone else about this and about how this is impacting me? Absolutely.
0: I think, too, we need to be um, aware of, even though the resident is not at home, they can still put quite a bit of pressure on a relative who is at home because even though there are staff in the facility to provide care and support, uh, there are never enough of them and as willing and dedicated as they are, they will not be able to provide that special one-on-one care and support that the resident has been getting at home. So if the relative arrives they can be a lot of pressure on them from the resident telling them all of the things that are not happening the way that they want it to happen or they can push some of their anger or their grief, their frustrations, everything that they're feeling about this adjustment, onto the relative and that can be difficult as well.
1: How do you recommend dealing with that, Sally? I'm guessing talking to someone else could be helpful. Absolutely,
0: just listening to the resident finding out exactly what the the problem is and then talking to people and I've talked about identifying the most appropriate member of the team whether it be a clinical manager or a unit manager, whatever the term for the sort of senior nurse in that part of the facility that the resident is living in and being um, quite clear about communicating with that person and sharing the concerns so that a, the facility are aware of the problem, and B, they can put a plan together to try and alleviate it. It's all about communication, and it, our expectations need to be realistic. An aged care facility, regardless of how well trained their staff is and how well resourced they are, they will not be able to sit beside um, someone you know for long periods of time. They won't be able to be responding to a bell in you know thirty seconds. It, does take time to get from one end of a unit to another. So people need to sometimes adjust their expectations, especially if they've just come from a hospice inpatient unit because there that there are very high ratios of staff to residents and you know the speed in which the staff can attend is very quick. and um, that's just not possible either in a public hospital or in a long-term care facility hospital. So we we just need to be sure that the issues are um, things that we can correct and work as a team to try and alleviate those concerns. And, you know, hopefully as a resident settles in and they get to know the staff and they get to know the routines, they become much more accepting and just adjust better and not quite so
1: reactive when um, things are just not going quite to plan. So it's a little bit about letting them vent if they need to vent, letting them know they've been heard, but not necessarily trying to fix it, but let it just be. Because sometimes, you know, if we're trying to fix it, we can kind of ramp things up and make it a little bit worse even, can't we?
0: Yeah, I think um, is the term choose your battles um, appropriate, it's sort of like there might be some things that, that, uh, you know, you can just let slide or you can keep an eye on it yourself as a family member. But there might be some concerns that definitely need to be addressed and focusing on the the very important things, I think, is a good idea.
1: So it's perhaps about identifying key concerns that need to be addressed and just supporting them to be heard on the ones that aren't perhaps quite so important. Sally, the other thing that can happen, of course, is that, you know, the people we're talking about are moving into aged care, usually because their health is deteriorating. Um, And that's going to start and have another impact in other ways, isn't it? Where they might decide to, you know, not seek treatment um, any further.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that can be very hard on families. And I think probably the most common and the most difficult concept for families to accept is when people lose their uh, interest in eating with a lot of conditions people as their disease becomes more advanced will lose weight and we try very hard through their disease um, journey to pack in nutrition and get lots of calorie and fat into their diet and often families are very involved in this to try and um, sustain their weight and their energy so that they can live as well as they can but people will get to a point, and this is often after they've moved into aged residential care, because of the advancing disease, because of their frailty, they'll get to a point where they just have no appetite, no hunger, no desire to eat at all and it can be really, really tough for families um, to accept that and sometimes eating becomes this emotional focus of a visit and so a family member will just spend the whole time that they're there trying really hard to encourage the resident to eat but it's hard for families to understand that this person actually doesn't need food anymore their body is not going to be able to metabolise it, to absorb it to, 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 to do what, it, what everybody wants it to do and that's provide energy and it, it, it is a very difficult concept for people to let go of I know of a a situation where a, um, an elderly woman with a little bit of dementia, but um, some other chronic illnesses, was reaching the end of her life and she didn't eat a morsel of food. Not one single bit of food went in her mouth for six weeks um, uh, up until she died. She did drink probably a good half to a bottle of lemonade um, every day and that probably would have... Helped her, but one of the daughters, a very intelligent woman, could not accept this and blamed the facility. The porridge is too lumpy, the soup is too salty, everything was about the food. And then, when she began to bring in all sorts of foods that she had prepared, even then the resident turned them down and um, she just couldn't accept it. And it got to the stage where when the daughter was coming through at lunchtime, to help this woman with her her meal, the resident just rolled her eyes back, you know, to say, oh, here we go again, you know. Um, so the quality of their visit was affected um, because the, the difficulty that this um, daughter had accepting that it was a normal part of the dying process for this person to lose their desire to eat. So it's, it's very complex and quite challenging.
1: And that is really understandable, isn't it, because we do equate feeding people we love with helping them get better and so you know that's quite a challenge to accept and it can feel deliberate that this person is choosing not to eat when actually it is their own body saying we can't do this anymore.
0: So we just need to change our focus from goals around nutrition to goals around enjoyment you know what little flavours might that person like a chocolate button might provide more taste and enjoyment um than you know a carefully prepared nutritious meal very small amounts of food good flavors that's what becomes important rather than the nutritional value
1: oh yeah i want chocolate that's my last meal i want chocolate And and that's it, because some people might have always enjoyed salty and savoury and others have enjoyed sweet. And rather than it being something nutritionally complete, what's enjoyable for them? The thing is, though, sometimes
0: those desires for sweet and savoury switch around and all of a sudden someone
1: has changed and now they want something completely different. So keep an open mind. Yeah, and be prepared to try something different. And Sally, I've heard you say before too that when we might feel as a family that someone is is giving up, in actual fact, it might be that they're taking control. Yeah, I think again, let's remember that
0: um, the people that we're, we're caring for are experiencing advancing disease and they're approaching the end of their life. They've They've lost an awful lot. Their energy is depleting. They've only got certain reserves and they might want to be in control of that. They want to save their energy for times when they want to use it. Fatigue is a, um, a very debilitating um, condition and people just don't have the energy to carry on doing those sort of normal routines. So if, if a family member comes in at you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and someone's still in their pyjamas or still on their bed or if they were going out um, for a trip on the van or something and they're not anymore. Yeah I think they just need to keep an open mind and think that there might be a really good reason for that and just not be too focused on expecting people to continue to do what they have been doing because they just might be wanting to rest. They just might be choosing um, to start to withdraw from those sort of things that they were doing. And it's not necessarily giving up. It's just being able to make choices about how they want to spend their day.
1: So when people are approaching the end of life, Sally, and it's in a care facility, what's going to be different about that compared to perhaps being in a hospital or being at home?
0: I mean, the first thing that we would refer to is those shared goals of care or those conversations and those decisions that we made earlier on about what people want and if that has been that the person wants to remain in the aged care facility that's their choice um, the place that they want to die then it's all about respecting their wishes and following that plan. Everybody who is unwell and, and who is reaching end of life will have a different kind of journey but there are things that we see that help us to recognise that a person is reaching that last stage of their life. And the, the typical things that we see in the population that are living in aged residential care might be that they are now spending more time sleeping, napping in the chair, sleeping on the top of their bed, than they are awake. They lose that interest in eating, and they're eating less and they're drinking less. Sometimes they... Um, They might have more recurrent infections that have needed to have some antibiotics. And we find that those antibiotics or treatments for um, sort of short illnesses are not effective like they were um, earlier on. People might start to reduce their function. They can't walk as far. They might start to develop problems with their skin and um, pressure areas or bed sores, they used to be called become more of a problem. People start to have difficulty swallowing and even taking their pills becomes a problem. So they're the typical types of things that we would see that might make us just prick up areas and think, oh gosh, you know, this person just might be moving into a, a dying phase. And, you know, that can sometimes be a couple of weeks or two or three weeks before they actually die, but it's a it's a change in their presentation. So what do we do about that? We follow the plan, we follow what we know the person wants, we follow what we have learnt from the family um, about what's important to, to the person. We don't move people out of the aged care facility um, either to a public hospital or to a hospice for end-of-life care and, and, and that's because it's important for the resident to stay in what has been their home and to be cared for by people who know them. We don't move people to hospice even if they've been involved with the hospice um, through their illness. Um, Hospice will come to them and that's where our team becomes involved and we support the aged residential care facility to provide end-of-life care for that patient and their family. And for the family it's a much nicer environment for the family um, to be visiting what has been that person's home. Generally, aged residential care facilities have completely open policies for um, visiting when families are supporting loved ones. Um, again, it's important to take care of themselves and to perhaps set up that roster that you talked about, Denise, and taking turns um, in being with the patient when they are dying. It's great to um, talk with the staff about how you as a family can participate in that care um, as much and as little as you want to. It varies an awful lot um, depending on um, how families want to be involved. Um, So sometimes, a lot of the time actually, (laughs) if someone has been sitting alongside a family member and they want to go home and they say, do you think it's okay for me to go home and have a shower and a two-hour sleep? And it, that's really, really difficult for the staff to actually be able to give you an answer. And it's very difficult to predict when someone is actually going to die. Things can sometimes take a lot longer than we expect, and they can also happen very suddenly. And I always say to people, how important is it to you that you're actually here when you know your mum dies? and if it is very important to that person, well, then maybe they should stay. Um, but it's not important to everybody. You know, it's absolutely fine to leave. You know, in, in fact, some patients prefer to be alone when they die. Others might have expressed that they don't want to be alone. So it's that's a really good thing for families to talk about before that time comes. Um, but, you know, it's OK. It's absolutely OK to do what is right for each
1: Each person. My experience over the years has certainly been that people seem to have an incredible ability to wait against all odds, it would seem at times, for somebody to be there with them. And equally, you and I have both seen situations where family have been with somebody around the clock for days and days on end, and in the few minutes they're on their own, that's when they've died. And it's as though this is something they have had to do on their own not with an audience, not with their family, with them. And I've always sort of felt that if somebody needs me there, they'll wait for me. But I like to let people know, you know, and I like to say, well, okay, if you're going to go home, that's fine. We'll let them know that you're going to be gone for a couple of hours and when you'll be back. You know, they will make their decision as to what they need to do. And I would encourage family members to ask questions if there's
0: something that they're worried about or something that's happened... Um, say for instance like the little syringe drivers the little uh, pumps that hold a syringe that deliver medicines when people can no longer swallow Um, you know there can be a lot of misinformation and mystery around the medicines that we use at end of life and sometimes people harbour regrets and concerns well after their relative has died because they haven't got the right information So we don't want people to be sitting there being worried and not feeling like they can ask questions because when they get the right information, you know, nine times out of ten, they're immediately reassured and they're not at risk of having these ongoing regrets as they move into that bereavement and grieving process.
1: It's as we said earlier, isn't it, is keep talking, communicating. If you have a worry ask about it and if you feel that you can't ask perhaps you might have a friend who could ask on your behalf or you might have someone else you can ask to get them that advice and knowledge from but keep the communication open Sally thank you for today it's been a wealth of information that I'm sure people will find helpful so thank you for sharing that with us my pleasure and thank you for joining us today this podcast was brought to you by Targo Community Hospice with support from Hospice New Zealand If you found this discussion helpful, check out our other episodes of Ending Life Well, a podcast series for carers. You can also find more resources for caring for a person who's dying at otagohospice.co.nz forward slash education.